Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we are in again 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Title of today's message, you just can't make this stuff up. And as we learned from our scripture reading in 1 John, Jesus is the word of life. He became manifested in human flesh. He grants eternal life. Jesus is that light. And he proclaimed in the Gospel of John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So Christ himself is our hope and our light. And that's how the first epistle of John begins. Jesus is the light of life. We also know from the Gospel of John, written by the same author, the Apostle John, it begins with a similar pronouncement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Again, the Word obviously refers to Jesus and the beginning of the world. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So Jesus becomes a message of light, but as we discovered last Sunday in 2 Thessalonians 2, there also exists a message of darkness. That message of darkness, well, it attempts to extinguish the light. It strives to keep men captive in the darkness. And to do this, this is what's supremely ironic, um, to do this, darkness masquerades as light. And is especially appealing to the sinful and the depraved mind. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 11 and verse 14 we read, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You can't just pick these guys out easily. There the Apostle Paul also says in that same breath, uh, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're disguised. So a spiritual war rages in a cosmic battle between light and darkness, between Christ and the Antichrist, between a message carried by true apostles against a deceitful message of false apostles 
who Paul says disguised themselves as apostles of Christ. This is all while they are pretending to be light. You can watch this spiritual battle play out in in very picturesque language in the book of Revelation. Uh, Many identify the beast as being this same antichrist we've been speaking about the last couple weeks, uh, spreading this spirit of the antichrist through an alternative religion. We know from 2 Thessalonians The Antichrist is instrumental in promoting a spiritual apostasy, a falling away from scriptural truth. While he's wearing the banner of Christ, a false Christ with a pseudo-church. And a multitude of Antichrists, we've learned, pursue their work from inside the church, from within the church. Matthew classifies them as wolves in sheep's clothing, right? <laughs> so, so they offer an appearance of being devoutly religious, sin- sincerely religious. They look like sheep. They proclaim an attractive-sounding message. But it's a false message. The Apostle Paul describes it as a lie. And to reinforce their false message, verse 9, oh, they feign, they fake. They feign spiritual power, signs, false wonders. (laughs) I know it sounds a lot like programming on TBN, right? Fake tongues, false healings. They have visions, they hear voices, they invent signs. It's pseudo-religion. And in the apostate church, the spirit of the Antichrist assigns to man attributes that belong only to God. Omniscience, omnipresence, authority to forgive sins, etc., etc., man is given privileges that are reserved only to God. Have you ever wondered why people will devote themselves to false religion? It kind of troubles us, doesn't it? How do people get wrapped up into this? I know someone who rises every morning early to attend Mass... Because he has always been taught, he's taught wrongly, but he's always been taught that his sins are absolved through participating daily in that sacrament. You won't find that in the Bible. Why are people so trusting in alternatives to the bloody cross? Why are they so, (laughs) this really gets, why are they so devout? Why why are they so sold out, so committed to channels of forgiveness apart from what the Bible describes as grace alone through faith alone? And why are we so different? Why are we 
Those of us who are born again, we're alive to God, renewed by His Spirit. Why are we so offended by alternatives to Christ? Mankind longs, he longs, she longs to be reassured that God accepts and forgives us. Humanity loves religion. They love religion. Uh, therefore, the Antichrist thrives through offering all sorts of alternative religion. And Antichrist invents something for everybody. Some are drawn to the high church, gold-plated crystal cathedrals, you know, formal religion, very formal, beautiful religion. Some embrace you know, spiritual mysticism. Their confidence exists in, you know, reports of spiritual apparitions, false miracles, things that are unexplainable. Some prefer just a casual and comfortable setting. Something easy. They can get it through the seeker movement. Uh, there they profess that God loves you just as you are. Doesn't demand any repentance or, or true spiritual change. They assure God doesn't really want to inconvenience anybody with having to adapt to those antiquated scriptural expectations. That's, a, that's an appealing message. Have forgiveness. Have Christ. Apart from any changed life. But scripture tells us those who are in Christ are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So there, ha there has to be a change. The Spirit empowers us with that change. Interesting in our text, in the chapter, the title, Man of Lawlessness, that title implies a resistance to the moral law of God, the holiness, the holy law of God. Uh, being antinomian, some of you are familiar with that word, it means against the law. Our Lord's brother Jude warned in the first century, quote, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Licentiousness means sinful abandon, without restraint. They say you can receive forgiveness which is God's grace, God's gift. Accept Christ and then persist in any moral lawlessness that suits you. You thought that was a new idea in the 60s? No, that's been around. Just, it just keeps getting repackaged in different ways. The Antichrist just keep developing it in something new and put a new label on it. Uh, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Still others, they allow themselves to get sucked into the extreme. The cult leader, Jim Jones, claimed to be Jesus Christ. He commanded his followers to drink the Kool-Aid, 
which they were first told was poison, but it wasn't. Not the first time. Jones then bribed some to collapse and feign death. Then before an audience of hundreds down in Jonestown, he resurrected them. Oh, it's a miracle. Made for TV, right? His point? I am Jesus, and I can raise the dead. That made his cult members much more willing to drink the real poison the second time. They all died. Folks, myriads and myriads of people buy wholesale into all these false representations of Christianity. Quote, unquote, Christianity. They're orchestrated by the Antichrist. It's an apostasy. Uh, why do you suppose millions, even billions, of people drink the proverbial Kool-Aid? Well, our passage today gives us some insight as to why. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10 reveals they've rejected the truth about Christ. Remember, th this apostasy is a falling away from true Christianity, falling away from scriptural faith. Uh, so this passage isn't describing Buddhism, Islam, uh, other false world religions. The apostasy defines those who have professed to have a knowledge of Christ, but fail to embrace the truth about Christ. That being that faith in Him alone is the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 10 assures these have been deceived, they have rejected the gospel truth, uh, therefore they will all perish and then in verse 10, second half of verse 10, I'll begin reading there. They will all perish. Why? Because they did not receive the truth of the love so as to be saved. Well, they ex exchanged the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1 would tell us. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the what? The truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, says Paul, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and 
word. <laughs> well, you just can't make this stuff up. Man could not write this Bible. There is no way we could invent the glory that is contained within. But people try. People try. Identifying as Christians, you and I are either believing the message of first-hand eyewitnesses to Christ, those apostles who John insisted must have seen, must have touched, and must have directly heard from the person of Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ, a, a true apostle, according to Scripture, had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Scripture then becomes their first-hand testimony. What we're reading is a first-hand testimony. We either do that... Or we've been willingly deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist who just makes stuff up. We have accepted the true gospel that God's innocent son has died for our sins, risen from the dead, is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we receive that gospel through grace alone. Grace alone. Grace means you make no contribution of your own. No rising early to take Mass. No contributions to your salvation through meritorious works. Uh, nothing added to your salvation at all. It's just grace. You can't earn forgiveness. You, you can't contribute to your forgiveness. Nothing you or I do deserves it. And after rejecting that in Christ, salvation is a free gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man shall boast, after rejecting this gospel, your embracing of any substitute by the Antichrist, it then becomes your willful choice. Rejection of Christ doesn't want salvation as God's free gift. It says, you know, I want to contribute to this somehow. I want to earn this any way I can. You know, maybe purgatory for a season. I'll pay my own way. I'll commit a percentage of my giving to the poor. God has got to somehow be impressed by me. I sure am. Anything that makes us conclude when we look in the mirror, hey, I'm looking pretty good. I look like royalty. I look marvelous. I come from a long line of Christians. I've never had to make any change in my life. I came out of the womb a Christian. Any hint of pride that causes us to say, thank you, God. I'm so glad I'm not like other people. It's the work of a Pharisee. 
That doesn't indicate being a Christian. The Apostle Paul forfeited his entire resume to gain Christ. His entire resume. Stating in Philippians 3 verse 7, I have counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I had suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's true Christianity. I give it all up. Nothing about me deserves the blessed salvation that God offers, but I'll take it. Oh boy, you just can't make this stuff up. And you can't add the grace. You can't create a new recipe and stir in ingredients of your own choosing. Because having ultimately denied the unmerited favor of God's grace and having added something to Jesus, just stirring in a little something of your own, you've then departed from the true Christian faith and have apostatized. You've fallen away from the grace of God. You've baked a concoction of your own religion. And next, Paul, he says we're going to have to unload all of our extra spiritual baggage today. We're going to have to take off our letter jacket, all the pins that we've earned. Uh, we're going to have to remove the airman patches and all the awards, uh, surrender the badges, burn the certificates and achievements, the diplomas and the degrees and the tiaras, and whatever else makes you think you're special. It's got to be thrown into the big dumpster fire we're going to have out front. It's all got to go. Only Christ can remain. Because verse 11 ought to terrify anyone who has baked up a false religion. Paul says, for this reason... They didn't love the truth. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they, may all, or they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. The wickedness is believing the false Christianity. The lie that is offered by the Antichrist. Consistent with earlier in this chapter, the phrase there, God will send, God will send upon them a deluding influence, it's written in the present tense active voice back in 51 AD. The ESV version more accurately translates this, God is sending. It's in the present. And throughout the church age, God has continued to send 
a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Literally there you have a footnote that says, so they will believe the lie. This delusion has always described God's response in the present. It's not something coming in the future. If you call yourself a Christian today and have trusted in something other than Christ, this, this is a danger. This is a sincere danger. Concerning this passage, uh, Professor Thomas Constable of Dallas Theological Seminary correctly concludes, quote, These principles of God's judgment apply in all ages and can be seen in the 20th century. Of course, he wrote that back in the 20th century, just as Paul wrote this back in the 1st century. Bill Witherington III, another theologian, states, quote, In a sense, Paul is saying that God allows those who refuse to love the truth to have the consequences of their choice, confirming them in their stubbornness. It is a matter of God giving people up to a debased mind. God saying, okay, if you insist, have it your way, including the consequences of such a choice, unquote. How can people who identify as Christian, this is a conundrum we've been trying to figure out for the ages, how can people who identify themselves as Christian, how can they remain so confident and so obstinate in their false Christianity. You can approach them with Scripture and the Bible that clearly exposes the futility of their error. You can say, but you're so far off from what the words say. And still they just remain so confident in the lie that they believe. How does that happen? It is because God has turned them over to that lie that they have determined in their hearts to love. Like, I'd rather have the lie. The point comes, God says, okay, I'm going to help you with that. Well, that ought to be terrifying. Hebrews 6 and verse 4 speaks concerning those who have been introduced to true Christianity, have outwardly professed Christianity, but afterward decided instead to believe a lie. The writer of Hebrews states, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Again, the falling away there describes apostasy. And then having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Oh, that is not a state we ever want to be in. Still, The writer of Hebrews says this, 
<laughs> but beloved, we are concerned of better things uh, concerning you. We are convinced of better things concerning you. What a blessing. Why, we're convinced of better things with you. I'm convinced of better things with you too. Still, the passage says, beware. There is a point after being exposed to Christianity, uh, yet rejecting the truth of Christ, the mercies of the gospel, there is a point that God will actively send a strong delusion to turn you over to the apostate lie you've decided to love. Why would God do that? kind of challenges our view of a righteous and loving God, doesn't it? Why, why would God do that? I thought about that. I have a theory. I'll share it with you in a few minutes. But it starts with, with we who truly belong to Christ. We who truly belong to God and have been called out by Him. You've already heard the bad news. Here comes some of the good news. Remember when it comes to a falling away of apostasy, a turning away from the truth, the writer of Hebrews said, Beloved, oh, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And this is amazing material in verse 13, 2 Thessalonians. But we should always give God, uh, give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you, through our gospel, says Paul, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why would anyone exchange God's goodness for a lie? The truth is that God's grace begins with us being called out. We're the called out ones. Romans 8 verse 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's glorification. So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is the first among many who will be raised from the dead. Uh, and these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So out of the false religion, everything that the Antichrist has to offer across the globe, God has called us out. Many people here can identify as having been called out of false manifestations of 
Christianity, myself included. Our good friend and previously an elder of this church, that's the late Jerry Robertson, he used to say, we don't get called up as if God's waiting for someone to answer. We get called out. Lazarus cried, Jesus, come forth. Jesus calls out. He doesn't just call up. And likewise, Jesus calls us to rise from the spiritual deadness of our sins to embrace the truth. Ephesians 2, verse 3, We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Boy, that's an amen right there. He called us out. We didn't get to have any say in this. We, therefore, do not get to take any credit for it. We were called out. <laughs> Why? Verse 13, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation and sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God didn't just choose us for salvation. He chooses us for sanctification. That is a separation of our life to holiness. Increasingly over time, we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ until the final state we see Him and we are conformed to His image fully in the flesh, glorified. We don't become God. We become like Christ bodily and glorified. God has called us out. He has chosen us from the beginning. He chose us for sanctification to be set apart. And for those of us who came out of, well, apostate forms of Christianity, let me ask you this. Could you have been sanctified, set apart in holiness, if you would have remained under that false teaching where you were? No. You can't stomach it. You can't tolerate it. Your ears can't stand to hear a perpetual distortion of the truth. God called you out. Come out. And as Ephesians 1 and verse 4 affirms, God chose us in Christ, well, it's from the beginning. Specifically, Ephesians says, says, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, also written by Paul, the same writer of 2 Thessalonians. Those two chapters are very emphatic that we were elected and predestined as God's choice from the beginning. That's referring to all eternity. 
And likewise, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now, you might have a, a translation that says you are chosen as first fruits for salvation, uh, which, if correct, would imply that Paul means that Thessalonica, the church he's writing to, was among the first in Macedonia to be called out. You were the first fruits. Um, of the gospel in that region. That may be an accurate rendering, but regardless, either way, it still has to be translated, God chose you for salvation. From the beginning, or as first fruits, doesn't matter, God chose you if you believe in Him. Affirms God's choice. I mean, you can put yourself with Johnson's baby oil. You can rub yourself down all you want. You can't wiggle out of election. You can't slip out of it. It's everywhere. And verse 14 says, And for this he called you through our gospel. <laughs> for this, for what? Well, for salvation and for sanctification. You must come out. You must be holy. There must be a separation from the deceitful manifestations of apostasy. So since this is God's sovereign act of calling you out, can you be called out unto holiness through sanctification and then just indefinitely linger in an apostate church that recites lies about Christ and His Word again and again. Can you do that? Doesn't seem very plausible, does it? When it comes to apostate Christianity, the elect are called out by God while, wow, while the rest are affirmed by God in their willful error. John Calvin writes this comment about Paul's intention in this passage. He says, quote, He means, speaking of Paul, He means the wicked will be blinded so that they will rush forward to ruin without consideration. For as God enlightens us inwardly by His Spirit, that His doctrine may be efficacious in us and opens our eyes and hearts, that it may make its way there, so by a righteous judgment God delivers over to a reprobate mind those whom he has appointed to destruction, that, that with closed eyes and a senseless mind they may, as if bewitched, deliver themselves over to Satan and his ministers to be deceived. The question remains, why? Why? You think about acts of God like in Egypt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God comes along, I'll, I'll add on to it. I'll harden it further. God can do that. But why? Why in the church age? I have a theory. Um, the theory I have for the reason why God sends them a deluding influence 
is not because God merely wants to amplify their judgment. Though, though that could be partly true, and you'll find that in some of your commentaries and study Bibles, that, that could be partly true. Um, he's going to amplify what they've already chosen as judgment. Um, but I don't think that's the main reason. Instead, I think it is because God wants to amplify the separation of His elect from an apostate church. That's what I think. Take it or leave it. God sanctifies us in the truth. His word is truth, John 17, 17. While He turns them over to an intensified delusion to believe what is false. And by God's design, we become like oil and water. We don't mix. I know some of you here were in false manifestations of Christianity. Your parents would never set foot to worship in a Bible-believing church such as this one or one like it. And we won't visit theirs either. I've been to a funeral to pay civil respects, but we do not share in the same false worship. God cleanses us by the washing and renewing of the Word. The preaching of the Word separates Christ's flock from apostasy. Antichrist can't stand to hear it. That's the reason the Apostle John stated, Children, it is the last hour. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be made manifest that they're not really of us. The separation. That's something. Through the preaching of God's word, the Spirit is causing separation. You can't make this stuff up. How would you ever write a book like this? Verse 14, this is also that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an important reference that virtually everyone agrees upon uh, applying to the final state of sanctification, which is glorification. When we see Him, we will be like Him bodily. Bill Witherington once again says, quote, In fact, it is a reference to believers obtaining the same glorious embodied condition that Jesus himself has as a result of the resurrection. And he points to 1 Corinthians 15. I don't want to neglect Paul's important reference to our final glorification. There's a whole sermon that can be done about that. But I do have to devote the remaining part of my time to verse 15. Before looking there, or having your finger there, Peter wrote to believers. And he described the believers as those having received a faith of the same kind as ours, says Peter, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Peter defended the true faith articulated by he and the original apostles, not circulated by leaders or apostate religion that came along long after. Peter says, you've got to have the same faith as ours. Likewise, as I read to you earlier, the Apostle John stated, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify. Think of the emphasis that John is using here. We have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, don't miss this, these things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you. It's what's written. It's what's written. The we here is the same as with Paul and with Peter. The we is their original apostolic testimony. They saw him. They touched him. We can't just make stuff up as we go. There's only one Christian religion. And its defense is confined to the pages of the Bible. It was written by the prophets in the Old Testament, the original apostles and their personal associates in the New, not by some Johnny-come-lately. Not like someone, Joseph Smith or many others, who came along centuries after the original apostles claiming to be modern apostles. None of them has heard, nor seen, nor touched the risen Christ. None of these became eyewitnesses to the resurrection. None can claim that. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 15 when he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Don't skip that. Paul says, you learned from us. Who are the us? Basic elementary grammar would show that Paul is describing himself, Salvanus, and Timothy, who are named at the introduction of the letter. The us could possibly also extend more broadly to the other 12 apostles, who, like Paul, were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And Paul is endorsing what they teach by word of mouth or by letter in juxtaposition as opposed to the others who just a few verses earlier, verse 2, offer a spirit, a word, or a letter while pretending to be us. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, No wonder, says Paul, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Folks, as we close, 
there is no other tradition that Christians are bound to today beyond what is written on the pages of Scripture. That's it. Many religious denominations will distort verse 15. Many will. And they'll say, quote, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And then they'll hold their thumb as they're showing it to you over the end of the verse that says, from us. Hold the tradition that you've been taught, but they won't describe where that tradition finds its authority, and by it they insist they possess authority to make up new Christian traditions and bind them upon all who follow. What we are bound to is what the original apostles saw themselves what they touched and heard from Christ, the word of life. Those original eyewitnesses from 2,000 years ago, they wrote it down. Why? Because they didn't have camcorders. It is written. There are no apostles in the sense of being eyewitnesses to the resurrection that are still alive today, or else they're really old. There are many who claim to be apostles today. You'll see them on TV. But there is no such apostolic succession authorized in this book.